Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. On the app, on your mobile, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We have got ourselves into Tuesday, the hottest day of the year, possibly coming. Uh, it could be any day this week. It's going to be up in the 30s. It was around 32 yesterday, uh, but it's quite nice having a bit of an Indian summer, isn't it? Uh, I don't know what everybody's complaining about. Is everybody complaining? The roads are still pretty quiet. The schools are meant to be back, but of course the concrete crisis means that there's about a thousand schools which are still currently out of commission. Uh, so I'm not quite sure if you're a parent uh, what you're being told, whether you're able to put your kids into school or whether you're having to take time off in order to look after them uh, so that they can do their homework remotely. Everybody knows that is a mission for disaster so we don't want to do that. Meanwhile the concrete crisis has taken another turn uh, because of course the education minister, the education secretary rather, uh, got herself into some hot water yesterday by swearing uh, off uh, mic. She was basically interviewed by ITV. She didn't like it, she didn't like the way they interviewed her Uh, and so Gillian Keegan um, has now made the off-colour remarks and everyone's saying should she now be out of a job? Well, I don't think you can fire somebody for saying what she thinks. I'd rather encourage ministers to be a bit more truthful. It might actually be a bit of a kick in the teeth for the opposition. We shall see. Uh, we've got Peter Whittle here, founder and director of the New Culture Forum. He's going to give us his view on what Gillian Keegan said and what is actually going on. I still ask the question that I asked yesterday. Who on earth thought it was a brilliant idea to use building materials that would basically self-destruct? in 30 years. It's like somebody selling you a car and saying you'll be fine for about three years, uh, but after that, the wheels are going to come off. What would you do that for? What is the point? 0344 499 1000. We're going to be talking to Dr. Renee uh, Hunderkamp this morning as well, because a story on the front page of The Times suggests that uh, the weight loss drugs, which are now on sale, uh, are going online in a massive way. Uh, some people are able to get them on the NHS. Doctors have warned, though, uh, that without a prescription, you can still buy many of these weight loss drugs, some of which may not be suitable for people, uh, and some of which may be actually being taken away from NHS supplies. I've been told by various people, various sources, uh, that there are some uh, medically sort of apportioned drugs which are being stolen from hospitals and sold effectively online on the black market. So if you know about that, we'd like to hear from you as well. 0344 499 1000. We've got lots of other things going on as well. Uh, There's some kind of possible meeting summit going on between Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un from North Korea. That could be a little bit worrying. We're also going to look back at that data in the spectator yesterday about why there are so many work shy people in Glasgow, in Manchester, in Liverpool and in Blackpool, where almost a quarter uh, of the working population is on benefits and out of work. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We'll also be checking in on the channel. We've got a reporter out on a boat and we've got some footage to show you there and we've got some reports to give you as well about how many migrants are going to be coming in in this rather clement weather. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let's get it on. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, the place to be for the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And do you know uh, that it's a year tomorrow since Liz Truss went to Balmoral um, to sign up to be the next prime minister of this great nation of ours? Peter Whittle is here from the New Culture uh, Forum. Good morning. Um, It's hard to believe it was only a year ago. It seems like an awfully long time, doesn't it? It it was a year ago. And also, uh, I think, you know, far more significantly, it was just a few days after that that the Queen died, actually, yes. remember, on the 8th, uh, well, th- this Friday yes. coming up. Yes, I mean, sort of signing in Liz Truss, if you like, was kind of her final act, wasn't it? <laughs> final act, Which yes. I, I don't think she'd thank anybody for in the history books. No, I wonder <laughs> I wonder what she thought of her. It's been, I think, a, a year, really, Mike, where 
anything that the government says is said really with an election in mind. Yeah. You know, I mean, and therefore, for me, there's a kind of phony war kind mm. of feel to the yes. whole thing. Um, certainly hasn't covered himself in glory, which he's sooner. He hasn't. Um, at all. And uh, it's just simply... You know, some people are saying, actually now, I've been reading in the papers, oh, well, perhaps uh, it was a, ma- a mistake not to have trust. Mm. Uh, I mean, these are the options yes. uh, this is that we're talking about. I mean, I think the problem with this trust was that her delivery and her kind of selling of what she wanted to sell yeah. was so bad was that, you'd, that you'd have to say, well, even if the ideas were right, even if the economic policy was, was sound, yeah. the way that she kind of tried to tell us that it was going to work was so awful that you'd wonder how else she would steward the the, the, yes. the, the economy in the country. Yes, exactly. Um, it was embarrassing to watch, actually. Uh, but I, I feel over the past year there's been this sense of drift, mm. this sense of a government kind of reacting to crises, yeah. not really having... Take the migrant crisis you yeah. mentioned earlier. There's been absolutely no real action on it, Mike. I mean, no, there are lots nothing. of initiatives, nothing. There's right. no will there really mm. to do anything about it appalling crime on the rise, all of these sort of things that the Tories once yes. would absolutely have been hot on, or at least people would have thought they were hot yes. on. I don't think people even think that now, No, actually. Well, people don't get locked up. People don't get arrested. We've got a sort of shoplifting epidemic going yeah, on at the yeah. moment. We've now been told by Dunelm that people are now stealing duvets. I mean, they're basically stealing whatever they want to steal. Yes. And there's a pretty good chance if you nick something from a shop, one, you're never going to be tracked down, and if you are, you're yeah. never going to go to prison or yeah. go to court or anything. Yes, well, you see, this, this, again, this is all happening under a Tory government. OK, the dying embers have won, but nevertheless, it's happening under a Tory government. Uh, can you imagine maybe what Thatcher would have done mm. in these situations? With the shoplifting thing, I think that's it's interesting. A lot of people, maybe on the left, will say, well, this is a... You know, this is a cost of living crisis. Yeah. What do you expect? I don't Actually, believe that. No, not at all. I mean, the fact is, you know... There have been very hard times in the past, mm. and it's insulting to say yeah. that people who actually fall on hard times are going to go and nick stuff. Right. And I think what it is more with this, and it, it, it's, it is quite extraordinary, 24% increase, right? And I think that if, in terms of numbers, compared to 2016, there's been something like five million more yeah. cases of shoplifting. Yes. You mentioned uh, about the uh, locking up of duvets, yeah. but also we had the cam- body cameras yes. uh, the in Sainsbury's. Yeah. There's a general sense of a breakdown in law mm. and order. There is. And I think as well that there people, a lot of people do it, um, just think they're not going to be punished. Right. And I think that's absolutely why they're doing it, because if you don't fear the consequences of something, mm. why wouldn't you do it? Yeah. Uh, and I know certainly from just talking to friends of mine in all parts of the country, you know, there's a general sense of uh, people are much more uh, on their guard when they're out and about. Mm. If you go out for a dinner in the evening, you're being very careful about people walking towards you. You're kind of looking around more, yeah. you know, because I think, generally speaking, people feel a bit more insecure yeah. in, out in public. Yes. I think, actually, you can see that people have... I, I think there are less people around. Yeah. People have slightly withdrawn from the public mm. space for that reason. Right yeah. And that is terrible. There are police you never see, for example. But there's also the sense that when the police are active, it's about the wrong things. Yeah. You know, it's about a Well, they're a knocking tweet. on your door because you reposted something exactly. on Twitter, right? Exactly. Which is not right. I think the real problem is, if I just may add, is that in the States, you know, the decision has been made to call a misdemeanor mm. something which if they if you shoplift something of 950 pounds or under or something like that yeah. that's just a misdemeanor so in other words it just goes now you're not going to get charged right. i'd hate it if that were actually to come the case here yes. too as well and again the government yesterday came out and said that they were going to push very hard for police officers to go and arrest people and charge them yeah. if they steal something for less than 200 pounds but it all, and once again, it's, it's, it's window dressing, isn't it? Yeah, They're yeah, saying yeah. that the police should do something that they should already be doing, in the same way that they said they were going to ban these zombie knives and machetes. Effectively, there's already a ban in place for those. Yes, it's it, already uh, yes, illegal. Yes. I mean, there's a nicety about what kind of um, knife exactly is banned. But, I mean, I don't know by banning them that you're going to stop them anyway. We've got some footage here, which I think we can see, uh, of a fight that broke out. Um, in a part of London, uh, South London, called Dulwich, which is actually quite a nice part of London mm. and quite a residential area. And if you can see it now, I think it's about to come up. We're warning you, uh, you might find some of these scenes um, a little bit disturbing. But if you can see what we're looking at here, it's two guys in the middle of a street, and it's, not, it's night time, but they've got these massive machetes, and you just think to yourself, 
this is London. Mm. What is going on? You mm. know, how soon before that starts happening in broad daylight? Yeah. How soon before, you know, all sorts of mayhem becomes the norm? Well, I mean, we saw, for example, in... Um in Oxford Street recently, I think you reported yes. on that, uh, this kind of, uh, it was like a, not exactly a riot, but it was a, a sort of mass disorder. They used to and, call it steaming, didn't they? Yeah, exactly, steaming, which used to happen on trains. Yeah. Uh, and this was sort of, there was looting took part. I think you actually pointed out in your article about London a while yeah. ago that one, uh, one supermarket in London had been... Uh, looted yeah. three times in one week, was it? In one day. In one day. Three times in one day. And now people wonder why um, they've got security guards, yeah. why they've got, yeah. you know, sort of security tags on things mm. like steak. This mm. was a, this was a, 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 it was actually a branch of the co-op. So people were stealing, coming in and just stealing whatever they wanted. Yeah. A lot of drink, quite often is the case. Yeah, yeah. But also terrifying the staff and telling people that, you know, if they try to stop them, that they'll stab them. Yes, yes. That kind of thing. Yeah. No, it is a, it's a, it's a kind of low-level uh, disorder now, which is sort of happening on a, on a daily, daily basis. Mm. And uh, the Met, I think the Met is still in, in special measures, is it? Which is extraordinary for all is. sorts of other reasons. Yes. But uh, basically, you've got a sense of lawlessness, and we have a mayor uh, who is far more intent on... Uh, you know, pushing things like his mate campaign. Yes. You know, his mate campaign and trying to charge people for driving around in their own street in their yes, own exactly. car, which yeah. is another story. Uh, we're talking to Peter Whistle, founder and director of the New Culture uh, Forum. We'll be back with more because we have to talk some more about Gillian Keegan. We have to talk some more as well, of course, about the current situation uh, in schools because it's not just the fact that the ceiling's crumbling in on them, uh, it's also the fact that they don't know which toilet they're supposed to use. This is Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've got lots going on today. Many, many opportunities for you to get your views across because this is the one place uh, where you can do that. Coming up in a little while, uh, we'll be going live to the channel. Uh, that's the English channel, by the way, uh, in which we are going to be talking to our reporter who's out on a boat this morning uh, looking for migrants and seeing exactly how the business works. Because as you know, as well as I do, there's going to be more and more migrants coming in the next few days because the weather is pretty nice. Uh, we've got Peter Whittle here, founder and director of the New Culture Forum. Peter, welcome. Yeah. Um, we've got a little documentary clip, something that you've been looking into for a while because it's a personal view yeah. of London, the lost city, um, because you used to call London your home and, you, right. no, and you no longer do. Let's have a look at the, uh, okay. at the documentary. Coming back to Woolwich to live many years later, it had, of course, changed utterly to the point of being unrecognisable. A home now seemingly to the whole world a place of countless identities and none. There is little sign in this landscape of what remains of the white working class. The speed of change has been mesmerizing. Indeed, lacking any real sense of overarching identity, the need to impose a sense of community has become paramount. Whether locally or indeed as we see nationally, never have we heard the word community so banded about. But it's all pretend, really. Community was never talked about before, simply because it didn't have to be. There's no question that London is a very different city to the one that, that I grew up in. It is. It's, uh, that's what the point of the programme mm. is about. It's a documentary that the New Culture Forum had made, which is on YouTube now. Um, I grew up, born and bred in London. My, um, I left it in uh, nearly two years ago mm. now. I still work here, but I, I left it to live... Um, fact is that, that I go into all sorts of different areas of why it's changed. But obviously, uh, one of the massive changes has been that when you say 30 years ago, so like one generation, um, the demographic change, because of the complete change in the levels of migration mm. into London, um, has actually transformed it yeah. in many ways. So, And it's been a very speedy change, hasn't it? Because it's been in the last kind of 10 years, really, hasn't it? It is. What worries me, really, is that it breaks... You know, if you have that level of change, it sort of breaks the continuity of a city. Of a city. It breaks a communal memory mm. about a city. So what's happened now is that instead of having a kind of sense of a communal backstory, uh, we now have just a set of values that yeah. Londoners should sign up to, mm. you know, on climate, on yeah. diversity and all and being a not not being a Brexiteer for a start. Right. But I, I think that the, the, the main thing is for me is that therefore it's not a British or 
much less an English city mm. anymore. Yeah. Um, and it's not a question. London, London's always had migration, but this order since Blair yeah. is without historical precedent. Oh, I think that's right. And the rest of the country um, isn't quite the same, is it? I mean, in some cities it's similar, but in most parts of the country outside of the cities... Um, the change is less noticeable. I, exactly. I think that a lot of people have left London yeah. um, uh, in the past uh, two decades. And um, this is, in a way, almost irrespective of, of anything that Khan does. I mean, yeah. I'm talking about a much longer period. And, of course, you know, um, it's a place now, I feel, where if you're young and professional, um, you know, in your 20s, it's a great place to be for a few years, yeah. maybe. But um, families, older people... You know, I don't think it's a place to put down roots. People used to say that about New York. You know, it was a very tough place to have a family because mm. unless you had an mm. absolute bucket load of money, the schools were not very good and it was quite dangerous, certainly mm. when I was living there in the 80s. Um, but New York was also a place where everybody who came there became a sort of New Yorker. Mm. You don't get the sense now that everybody who's come to London feels like they're a Londoner. No, I, I, not, not at all. Or rather, actually, interestingly, uh, you know, there were Londoners, uh, you know, Cockneys, for, mm. uh, for example. One of the points made... Well, the East End is no longer Cockney, is it? Oh, good Lord, no. I mean, East Enders, the, the, the TV show, has been a polite fiction for yeah. about 25 years, mm. you know. Um, you know, people say, oh, you're just, you know, an old guy and you're kind of getting, uh, you know, just uh, rose-tinted glasses. It's not really a case for that. I mean, the response we've had to this programme has been extraordinary and uh, mostly very sad, uh, people feeling that something has been lost. I think what it is is that the, the character and the, the sense of uh, London as a unique place, that has sort of gone. It's become much more fragmented now um, and it's held together, as I said, supposedly by these values... Uh, Cities don't have values, mm. my. I mean, they have history. That's like banks you know? say that they've got values. Yes, isn't exactly. It? Which it's is the what same we've also thing. Seen. Because it's also virtue signaling. When people talk yeah. to me about values, I immediately suspect that they're up to no good. Yeah. Because what they mean is, is that we think this, and if you don't think it, you're in, you're not only in the wrong, you're an evil individual. Yes, exactly. That's where we're going. Exactly, it? and uh, that that's very strong in London. Mm. I mean, if you were a Brexiteer in yes. London, poor, you know, it was. It was tough, I mean, mm. in that sense. Although I'm very conscious of, of something that I have never been conscious of until, I would say, the last year or two, which is when I'm out and about, as I am quite often in London, um, you often see, because I'm you know, relatively robust in the way that I speak and we have mm. conversations mm. with one another and whenever I'm at a bar mm. with somebody, but you can see some people kind of looking over and kind of going, oh, my goodness me, look what he just said. Yeah. Almost yeah. as though there's some kind of thought police yes. going around watching people and making sure they don't say the wrong thing. Yes. That's very, very strong in London, I think. I think there's also... It's sad, isn't it? Yes, it is. There's a kind of arrogance to, I'm afraid, about many people in the city now um, who, you know, they think we are doing it the right way and the rest of the country is uh, just a provincial... uh, Yeah, what do these idiots in the north know? Yes, exactly. That kind of thing. Uh, That is very strong in London. And also the establishment is now a left-wing establishment. Oh, yes. From the civil service down. Well, also, you know, London, all the cultural institutions in London from... The British Library, right through to you know Kew Gardens, yeah. um, they are all decolonising. Mm. You know, they're at the very forefront of this kind of you know anti-British, yes. anti-British, ashamed history. of our history. Yeah, all of that. That's very much coming from London. Yeah, which is dangerous, I think, for the culture of, of Britain. I think it's dangerous for the history of Britain yeah, yeah. and also for the future yes, of exactly. Britain. Because what do we do if we just kind of disassociate ourselves from our past and we just say, well, it really was so embarrassing that we never talk about it. Yes, exactly. We can't be doing that. That's awful. Um, luckily, though, we do have artists who can capture moments. Um, <laughs> we're going to look at now, I think we have a painting that's been done of Theresa May uh, that you wanted to talk about. Uh, she was, of course, Prime Minister for slightly longer than uh, Liz Truss, but not that long. Not, not, not what did you make of Theresa May as a Prime Minister? Um, I think it was one of the most depressing periods I can think of politically. Yeah. Right. I never forget 2019, before we had the election in December. Uh, Here's a painting. It looks like a sort of really bad album cover from the uh, sort of late 70s by Uriah Heep or something, one of those sort of heavy metal bands. Or it's it's actually strangely not a very political picture. This is her official picture. It's been done at a cost of 28,000. I have to say all prime ministers get this. It's a bit funereal, isn't it? Yes. Well, she looks like a sort of Edwardian lady novelist. Yes. 
actually. Yeah, not it. a very good one. Uh, or, or, or Doctor it's Who. It's very flat as well. I mean, <laughs> tell me, I mean, my father was an artist, so I mean, I'm not talking oh, completely right. utterly from a point of ignorance. It looks very two-dimensional yes. to me. It reminded me rather of the artist Wyndham Lewis, yes. you know, from the 1930s, yeah. 40s, who's in the, you know, in the portrait gallery. Um, I, I think that she's been very gracious about it, mm. and I don't know what she privately thinks. What's interesting, though, is that when Churchill had one done, which was in the uh, mid-1950s, he yeah. had his official portrait done by Graham Sutherland. Yes. And, uh, you know, uh, he obviously hated it. But he was gracious enough mm. to say, uh, this is a fine example of modern art. Right. Um, but then uh, it was discovered afterwards that Lady Churchill had burnt it. Right. I mean, it was by a great artist called Graham Sutherland. That can happen. Uh, my <laughs> ex-wife burned a lot of my stuff as well, but for a different reason. Um, let's talk finally just yeah. about the school situation. Yeah. I mean, Gillian Keegan, um, many people think that she's should be uh, sort of... Um, um, congratulated for, for straight talking but whether or not she survives in this particular climate of you know blame and counter blame mm. I don't know but let's talk a bit about what's going on inside the schools mm. as well yes. the gender neutrality um, some of the encouragement of, of, of schools particularly private schools actually to, to, to ask uh, children if they wish to change their gender. And also uh, single-sex, mm. uh, you know, laboratories. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, not single-sex, but mixed-sex mix, mix laboratories. Yes. Uh, basically, the nub of what the story is today, Mike, is, is that there's a new report out by a group called Sex Matters, mm. and it's just pointing out that, in fact, if teachers allow kids just simply to use whatever they like, whichever toilet they like, uh, simply based on their gender identity, then they might be breaking the law because the law actually says that you shouldn't do that. Right. that you should actually, you should actually um, still work on the basis of biological sex. Now, yeah. the thing is, is that teachers in this report, I think uh, 70% of teachers um, reported that there were non-binary and uh, you know transgender pupils in their schools that's a huge amount mm. right but i feel that there's a lot of social contagion about this mm. i do think that it is incredibly uh, dangerous you know mm. at that age particularly to allow boys to go into girls it seems bonkers lose. isn't it it does and in fact four uh, young girls i think four teenager teenage girls have written to sunak it's in the paper today pleading for basically single-sex bathrooms. I mean, mm. it's extraordinary that we've got to this stage. I think why it's important, this report, is that I think many people might be under the impression that this is all a matter of the law now, that in right. fact anyone can use anything and you can identify and, as what you like with no consequences. But in fact, the law states something quite specific mm. and it's worth looking into that because parents now don't really know what they can and cannot say to teachers. Right. No, it really is a very, very sort yeah. of ridiculously confused area, yeah, and it exactly. shouldn't be. It yeah. really, they've sort of created it and yes. made it more confused out exactly. of nothing. Uh, Peter, great to see you. Thank you very much, indeed. We're out of time, unfortunately. Peter Whistle, founder and director of the New Culture Forum. Have a look at that uh, documentary. What's it called? London. It's called A, a Lost London. A Lost London. Uh, you can find it. A on London YouTube. Lost. Sorry. A London Lost. There you go. <laughs> yeah, lost the title there know. for a minute. Never mind. <laughs> um, uh, we'll be back very shortly. We're going to go down to the English Channel to check out what the migrant situation is today. There'll be plenty of them coming across because the weather's not bad at all. Also, we're going to talk to Dr. Renee Hunderkamp, uh, who is, of course, a GP in the NHS, as well as a brilliant broadcaster. Uh, she's going to be talking to us about all of these um, fat pills that you can now get, not only on the NHS, but also online. Are they dangerous? Are you taking them? This is Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Much to do, plenty of time to do it. And don't forget the number, of course, 0344 499 is the number. Paul in Sevenoaks says this, how great your speaker. Uh, I was Peckham born and bred, parents from the same. I hate London now. I work there but can't wait to get back to Sevenoaks every night. London has fallen, ruined by mass immigration and crime. And, of course, Sadiq Khan. Uh, and, of course, I always look to America uh, for our next crime trend, says Steve. Uh, copycat crimes here as we relax punishments as well. Nearly $1,000 and you won't get charged. Insanity. Yeah, that's exactly what happened uh, over in San Francisco, particularly uh, where basically the police made a statement which said, if you are robbing a store and if you are running in and out of various big department stores and taking goods to the uh, uh, amount of money less than $1,000, we will not prosecute you we will not even bother chasing you and so of course as you can imagine the stores have had an absolute nightmare trying to run a business without getting half of the stuff nicked 
every single minute of every single day. Absolutely crazy. Uh, but here's something else that's come from America, and it is, of course, the various different anti-obesity drugs that are doing the rounds. Uh, Wigovi is one, uh, which we're being told uh, is going to be available through controlled and limited launch this week uh, on the NHS. It's going to be up to 50,000 obese patients who are going to qualify uh, for this NHS pilot scheme. But apparently, you can also buy the stuff online. And there's a big row going on currently because a lot of the supply is actually being siphoned away from the NHS and being sold for profit because Boots and Superdrug will sell it privately for about £200 a month. Let's talk to Dr Renee Hunderkamp, uh, GP in the NHS and of course broadcaster right here on Talk TV. Uh, Dr Renee, very good morning to you. Good morning to you, Mike. I'm afraid you get me in very casual mood today. Is it Alice's last day before she starts big school? Well, she's lucky she's got a school she can go to, you know. I mean, you better check the uh, <laughs> check the walls and the, and the ceiling as you go in. Um, this is a fascinating uh, story, really, isn't it? Because it's kind of, um, it's a bit like medicine has kind of overtaken the world and overtaken reality. Because here we've got a drug which nobody's absolutely sure is not a terribly bad idea but they think it's a good idea for people to lose weight while they're on it. But it's almost being released in a dual way. So you can either get it on the NHS if you're lucky enough to get it that way, or you can just pay for it. Mm. I mean, Mike, you, you've said so much there that needs to be unpicked about this. And there are so many issues here. I think, firstly, if there was ever a demonstration that big farmers focus is now purely on profit yeah. we see it here because we see it aimed at obesity which is the biggest problem that we have in this country and every western country to be fair you said it had been shipped over from america this idea as has obesity because we have followed their food fads the food companies are here you know dishing out their really really horrible nasty not good for you food that's really tasty so you eat loads and loads of it and you get fat mm. and then farmers step in with this fab fabulous solution to try and help you do it and of course the, the drug companies must be laughing Mike at people scrambling to get this so that there's a black market there's an NHS market there's a private clinic market because they are going to sell this stuff hand over fist and I think it's important to remember that there are several things about this drug that we don't know we only have about two years data in terms of long-term side effects. And there are some links with the rodents they tested it on with cancer, with blindness, with all sorts of nasty side effects. So if you take this, you're part of an ongoing long experiment because we won't know for several years. Right. Secondly, you only lose weight on this while you're taking it. When you stop taking it, your appetite comes back, you start eating and the weight goes on. So here's the NHS scrambling to put money into this. And if you compare it with other things, for example, like children who have intractable epilepsy that we know from really good data from Canada, for example, can be helped by medical cannabis, but they can't get it. Mm. But here, if you're obese, you can get this with two years of data. You have to question what has gone wrong here that we seem to be guided purely by what Big Pharma want us to do? Yes. And also, apparently, there's a, a similar drug, which is also available on the NHS, um, which contains uh, the semaglutide, I think it's called, the drug's active ingredient. And this is marketed under the name Ozempic. And people get that as a treatment yes. for type 2 diabetes. But that's also being sold off-label. And apparently has been used, according to a piece of the Times today, uh, by people like Boris Johnson and Jeremy Clarkson. So you can get the I actual mean, nature of the drug already on online. You can, and there are two issues here as well. Firstly, I think it's absolutely obscene to try and convince people that this drug is safe and effective because Jeremy Clarkson and Boris Johnson are taking it. And people will be guided by that. They'll think, oh God, they wouldn't say anything or do anything that wasn't good right. for them, so it must be okay for me. And then the second strand of this, there are people with diabetes who need this drug. And um, Ozempic is now actually intermittent in terms of its supply, mm. which means not everybody who needs it for diabetes can get it. Right. So, I mean, is it likely, I mean, I've also heard stories uh, of missing sort of batches of it from from hospitals because, you know, because it's in such high supply, high demand rather, and because it is quite uh, expensive to, to buy privately, I'm hearing that there's some, shall we say, NHS supplies going missing uh, out of hospitals and possibly out of doctor's surgeries uh, and going, uh, not going to the pharmacy, but going to online businesses where they can make an absolute profit out of it. 
Do you know what, Mike? I can't comment on that because I haven't heard, but it wouldn't surprise me mm. because whenever there is money involved and when you're talking about obesity, there is always money involved. Just have a flick through TikTok and you know Instagram and see the things that are being sold to people to actually help them lose weight. Wherever there is money, there are bad people everywhere who will do this. Mm. And so you've got here this fantastic market. It's almost akin to a drug market, isn't it? That yeah. you know, if you can get hold of this stuff, you can sell it and make a quick buck. And also, presumably online, there will be all manner of kind of copycat style, you know, pharmacy type organizations selling something different. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And claiming it's a fat drug. Yeah. And people will be buying that and they'll say, oh, you know, buy the, buy the cut rate version or something like that. And people will buy it because they want so much to lose weight that they'll try anything. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. And they, they don't think for a second, hang on a minute, what might I be, be buying? And we've seen this in the aesthetics industry where people are buying things to put into their lips that have actually got cement in it and it's actually really dangerous. There are people that have died from injections into their buttocks yeah. because it's not got medical grade silicon in it but actually has cement and the same will happen with these injections. People will buy it because they're desperate. When it comes to losing weight, people are desperate. Mm. They may not want to take the actions that will help them do it but they are still desperate for the end result. And so yes, there's a black market where you could be buying anything. It could have rat poison in it. Yeah, it really is extraordinary, isn't it? And have have we lost sort of the regulatory um, sort of safeguarding in this country then? Is, it, is this the first time you've seen something sort of a bit like the Wild West here? Because it seems to me that, you know, if I went online right now, I haven't tried to do it, to, try, to see if I could buy some Wigovi, I presume that wouldn't be difficult, but I wouldn't really know whether it was. I wouldn't necessarily know where to buy it from, and I would consider myself to be a reasonably well-informed individual. But if, you, if you're not sure what you're doing, you could be buying anything. You could absolutely be buying anything. And I think what's actually contributed to that, Mike, is the ease with social media now, with the internet. Whereas 30 years ago, you wouldn't have been able to do that. It would have been really difficult. You would have had to meet a man in an alleyway. You know, and first of all, you'd have to know how to contact him. Now you can do it in your living room with no one else mm. helping you and arrange, arrange to actually get this delivered and posted through your letterbox. I don't think that's necessarily a failure at the moment of our regulation because these drugs are being regulated, although these ones are being fast-tracked through as far as I can see. But I do think there is a failure of the regulators to get up to speed with the modern world and get online and stop people selling this stuff. Yeah, absolutely right. It could be quite dangerous. So I think um, caution would be the watchword of the day. Dr Ray Hundekamp, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Steve Barclay, who's the health secretary, said this. The facts about obesity are stark. It's the second biggest preventable cause of cancer and cost the NHS around £6.5 billion. So this new generation of medicines does have the potential to be a game changer. However, Professor Camilla Hawthorne, chairwoman of the Royal College of GPs, has also said uh, that semaglutide, uh, which is sold in these two forms of either Ozempic or Wigovi, should not be seen 
as a miracle drug. Uh, she said, as with any medication, there is the risk of side effects. It's growing popularity for personal use, either acquired through online pharmacies, off-license, with minimal dubious online sources, without a prescription at all, is troubling. It could be that it's a genuine threat to health. So if you've tried to get hold of some of this stuff, or if you uh, have tried it, I'd be very interested to talk to you because I think the problem here um, is that people will be running headlong uh, down that road to say, well, if I can take a, a, a pill to lose weight, why wouldn't I? Without actually knowing how bad it might be. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We'll take some calls coming next on Talk TV. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is the place to be, of course, for the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We'll be taking your calls as well. It's also uh, the only place where you can get your voice heard. We can amplify it for you. Uh, we can generate for you uh, interest in what it is that you have to say. Because let's face it, there's an awful lot of politicians out there right now who do not in any way, shape or form actually do much for you. Because at the end of the day, that's what they're meant to do. Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, you know, he might be a very competent manager. He might well be somebody uh, with his finger on the pulse of all manner of things. But is he really the right man to lead us at this moment in time? Is he really the right guy to take us into the choppy waters uh, of an economic crisis? Uh, does he know how to fix the roof uh, when the sun is shining? Well, according to the people that run the school systems in this country, uh, the sun has never been shining because the roof has never been fixed. And in fact, the roof is about to collapse. And that is a big problem, I have to tell you. Over at Birmingham City Council, apparently they are effectively bankrupt. According to a joint statement from the leader and deputy leader, the Labour Authority uh, says that they've had to put themselves on notice, uh, basically to spend only essential amounts of money. Uh, they say it's a necessary step uh, as we seek to get our city back on sound financial footing. Now, this has been done before. Croydon did it. Thurrock have done it in Essex. It means a local authority judges itself, basically, to be in financial distress. And this has come about, of course, because of the settlement that was made some time ago about equal pay. Because one of the things that happened, I suppose it must be minimum 10 years ago now, maybe more, uh, where it was worked out that all the local authorities in this country had actually been paying men and women at different rates for the same job. And then, of course, they had to make it all up. So they had to give all the women extra money. And according to the figures we're looking at, Birmingham City Council is now £760 million in the red because that's the bill they have got to pay to settle all of these equal pay claims. So it's a pretty big story. Uh, and it's only a kind of a snapshot of what the problems are uh, that face these local authorities at the moment. Because local authorities, of course, haven't got any money either. The reason for that is they employ so many people, they pay them so much money and they have such big pensions that there's nothing left after they've done all that. And that is part of the problem. Let's talk, though, about the welfare state as well, because Michael Simmons is here, data editor from The Spectator. We mentioned yesterday uh, that there was some great information that had been obtained from the Department for Work and Pensions, that as many as a fifth, and in some cases even a quarter, uh, of working populations in towns like Blackpool, uh, cities like Manchester, Liverpool and Glasgow, were basically out of work on out-of-work benefits, even though there were jobs actually available in those places. Let's talk to Michael now about how uh, he put all of this together. Michael, very good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much for joining us. This is something that uh, I suppose we might have known, but we didn't actually know the, the, the size of the problem and, and, and the kind of the, the horrific nature of so many people being on out-of-work benefits, many of them long-term. Yeah, absolutely. So the government through the ONS will tell us, you know, every month that there's there's so many people unemployed and they, they put that figure at sometimes it's around a million people. But the DWP have this um, great database. Well, I say it's a great database. It's got great data in it, but they don't really publish anything from it. They just put this big data dump up every three months and it's got all the information about who's getting benefits, what, how many people are on what benefits, the costs and things like this. And through analysing that database, we at The Spectator were able to find these figures down at local authority level. And actually, you can go even down to sort of street level. And as you say, in Blackpool, nearly, free, uh, nearly a quarter of the working age population are on out-of-work benefits. In places like Glasgow, it's one in four. You know, these former industrial towns, there's just so many people languishing on these benefits. And it's an um, important thing to say, you know, people have criticised us and said, oh, we came, these, we came up with these numbers and said, you know, these people are out of work, therefore they could be in work. It's actually the DWP's categorizations themselves. 
It's anyone can go on this website, DGP Stat Explorer, find the tables, do the same analysis. So the government knows, or at least analysts within the government knows that these many people are on these out-of-work benefits in these towns, but they don't seem to want to make any kind of clamour. They don't want the story to come out. No, isn't that strange? Because I suppose every government wants to make it look as though their unemployment rates are down, um, that employment rates are up. They used to use kind of students as a bit of a, uh, a sort of fig leaf, didn't they, to sort of hide behind. And sometimes they used to use some different tools in the welfare um, wallet, if you like, to kind of disguise the fact that more people were actually not working uh, than we knew. But this, it's a big problem in this country. A lot of people now draw attention to it, not, not those in government, but elsewhere, who say, you know, we have got plenty of people who can do the jobs that we say that we need to bring immigration in for, and yet they're not doing them. And is it really down to the fact that they're, it's not worth their while? You know, if they're on certain types of benefits, it, it's not, if they took a job, they'd actually lose money. Yeah, certainly. So there's definitely still problems with um, the universal credit system, which, as you say, is meant to taper so that um, as you get into a job, your benefits are, are slightly are slightly cut until you get to, to a higher earnings threshold and then you would have no benefits at all. And there is some issues with kind of the implementation, implementation of that, that for some people, they just say, you know, there's no point being in work because I'm better off on benefits. Right. But actually what we've seen after the pandemic is more and more people going on to benefits because of some kind of health issue. And certainly COVID and more so the lockdowns have seemed to have caused you know, so much damage to people that people who have gone off sick in those periods of work have just never returned and now find themselves workless and on benefits. And I think the government sees now that an easier strategy to fix our kind of labour shortage, there's a million vacancies in the economy, seems to be to plug it with immigration rather than look to say, look, is there anything we can do to encourage people back to work if they're healthy? And for those that are not healthy enough to get back to work, can we A, you know, do things to fix their health situation so they can get back to work or find ways that they can work? I mean, more and more people, as we you know, talk about all the time, work from home. So surely people who originally, if they were ill and they just couldn't be in the office, could now be find some sort of work, whether it's government work, mm. whether it's private work, that they can do from home. Yeah. I mean, whenever we talk about these things, and after I did it yesterday, I got the same kind of response from an awful lot of people out there who are on benefits who say, look, uh, all of these descriptions of benefits that you're telling us, don't we don't recognise them. You know, people say it's much, much harder to get those benefits that, that you're saying everybody's on. And they say, listen, you know, um, you have to jump through all sorts of hoops. You know, if you are going to try and uh, present yourself to somebody who's unfit to work for a medical reason or for a mental health reason, um, you know, it's not as easy as you people always say it is. Now, I don't know because I haven't been uh, through that system, uh, certainly not recently anyway. I mean, is it much more difficult to get on welfare now than it was or is it too easy? So I think when they brought in universal credit, they did make it more kind of challenging to, to get on to um, certain benefits. And, you know, there will always be harrowing examples of people who are just clearly far too ill to work and yeah. they need to be looked after by the state right. and that should be made effectively as a painless as process yes. as possible and nobody but, would dispute that i mean i would I, I mean you know i'm often accused of being heartless and you know you want everybody just to get out of bed and go to work and well yes up to a point but clearly the welfare state is supposed to be there as a safety net it's supposed to help people who can't help themselves who can't get a job but it, what it's not supposed to be is a long-term option for people who are perfectly able to get a job Exactly. And again, this seems to be something that's changed during the pandemic that we've heard certainly examples of where they would ask for more evidence. For instance, if somebody presented with a mental health issue, there's now less questioning around that and they get put straight onto yeah. you know certain categories. And there's certain categories that if you're in those, you then have no work requirements. So you're not obliged to look for work. But the bigger problem with this lot of people that came in on the pandemic, and fair enough, you can say it was a pandemic, we couldn't do checks on those people, is they seem to just be now left languishing on these benefits. Mm. There's no effort to look at that cohort that went on to these out-of-work benefits and say, you know, has their situation improved? Can we do anything to help their situation improve? So I think now it is it does seem, well, from what we hear, it seems to be easier to get on these health benefits. Yes. I mean, Fraser Nelson in the Telegraph today, um, obviously also from The Spectator, says um, the biggest social justice problem for the Tories at the moment is welfare. Uh, and he talks about um, the new um, Minister for Energy, or the new Secretary of State for Energy, uh, I should say, Ms Coutinho, uh, working on a welfare plan that was sort of following in the footsteps of, of Ian Duncan Smith. So, I mean, what are they hoping to try and do the Tories and if and if they are trying to do anything what are they going to do before the election 
Well, so the, the Tories, you know, just recently have basically had a sort of 10 year celebration for universal credit. And they seem to be saying, you know, job done. And what Fraser has, I think, been saying in his Telegraph pieces is that, you know, clearly job not done, you know, mm. 5.4 million and out of work benefits. So there are people who see this maybe as a something that the, the Tories can have a mission that they can present um, as potentially, you know, for, for the next election of welfare reform might be their path to victory. And what they're suggesting is, you know, changing these work assessments to see how people end up on these benefits. But also they want to bring in, instead of work coaches, they, I don't want to use the word life coach, but almost a coach that once you're in a job, they, you know, do things to help you stay in that job and follow people down the journey rather than just this initial contact. So these are the things they're looking at. But to be honest, they do seem to me devoid of ideas and they need more kind of policy in this area mm. if there's to be any true reform. And in your um, data analysis in The Spectator this week, uh, you talked, Michael, about how there were jobs available in, in all of these locations, like in Manchester uh, and in Liverpool, where there were 9,000 jobs, I think, in Liverpool, averaging 34,000. Um, in Glasgow, an average of £35,000 jobs, 11,000 of them. Manchester, 22,000 jobs at 39,000. I mean, would some of these people, do you think, qualify for those jobs because they're quite well-paid jobs aren't they yeah so um again they're well-paid jobs but a lot of the jobs are not necessarily um highly skilled jobs there these can be warehouse jobs some of them are retail jobs some of them are call center jobs and the reason why that the salary is maybe more than you might expect is in part because of this labor shortage that we've had companies have had to pay their staff more which is good you know good for um employees although it has maybe contributed slightly to inflation. But at the end of the day, these jobs are now probably better than being on benefits. Hmm. So I know we were saying earlier that the taper is an issue, but there are jobs in these cities that if people can be encouraged to go out and look for them and you know get up and go, then they can get themselves into a better position than being on benefits. Yeah, absolutely right. Michael, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Michael Simmons there, data editor at The Spectator, with the staggering news that as many as a quarter of the working age population in places like Middlesbrough and Blackpool are actually on out-of-work benefits. A slightly smaller percentage, but around about 20% in Glasgow, in Liverpool and in Manchester. So a fifth of the population. It's too high. And I wonder whether there's a reason why those particular cities have got this problem. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number. We've got loads more to do. We've got plenty of great messages from you as well. We'll get through all of that. Plus Lord Sumption coming up a little bit later on. This is Talk TV. Edgy talk, plain talk, unrivaled talk. Mike Graham, the only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On the app, on your mobile, talk radio and talk TV. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, all human life is here and in fact uh, later on in this hour uh, we'll be talking about life which may or may not be human because we're going to be talking to Charlotte Edwards, Assistant Technology and Science Editor uh, over in the United States of America because she's going to be talking to us about what NASA has been doing. NASA has been having secret conferences on a plan uh, just to say in case of evidence of alien civilizations is discovered by the James Webb Space Telescope. Science is a wonderful thing. Uh, it can be used for all sorts of different scenarios. And if, in fact, the James Webb Space Telescope was to find something that could not be explained, what would NASA do next? We'll talk about that a little bit later on. First, though, Jonathan Sumption is here, uh, author and medieval historian. Of course, I've got his new book, uh, Part 5, uh, The Hundred Years' War, Triumph and Illusion. It's quite a tome. And it talks as well about relationship that changed between England and France because of course there was a time when England uh, was in the north of France an awful lot and kind of ran it. Um, Calais was lost during this particular period and it's perhaps never been quite the same. Calais still very much a big uh, uh, sort of geographical location as we talk about the migrant crisis, uh, as we talk about how to solve it, as we see many many people from all around the world ending up in Calais. It's become a real focal point for all sorts of people from all sorts of civilizations who all want to come to Britain. So let us say a very good afternoon uh, to Jonathan. Uh, nice to see you, Jonathan. How are you? Afternoon. Nice to uh, nice to have you with us. We'll talk a little bit about um, the book um, coming up in terms of the importance of the French and uh, the English kind of um, 
uh, togetherness, if you like. I mean, you can still wander around parts of the southeast of England, and perhaps also all parts of it, and see Norman churches all over the place, uh, in Sussex in particular, where the Normans landed. Um, there's all manner of kind of togetherness that we could claim from our historical past, but, but it's not quite as good now, is it? Well, the book is really the story of how it, Britain became an island, because for most of the Middle Ages, Britain was not politically an island. Uh, Britain, or England, uh, really, um, England either dominated or actually directly ruled much of the Atlantic areas of France, mm. Gascony in the south, um, Brittany uh, and Normandy. The high point, really, was reached with Henry V, who, after the Battle of Agincourt, conquered a great deal of northern France. The last volume is the story of how all of that was lost mm. uh, in the space of a single generation, just 30 years. Um, and uh, England was eventually left with nothing other than Calais. And was it, that, it's a dramatic story. And was that as a result of, of a failed sort of military? Was it a result of bad policy from from those who were supposed to be in charge? It was the result of the fact that France was a much richer, more populous country. Uh, we had taken advantage of a French civil war to conquer much of France mm. under Henry V. Uh, when the civil war was healed, as inevitably these things are, we were left facing uh, a, a richer, more powerful, more organized country. And the result inevitably was defeat. Yes. I mean, I always like to think we could learn lessons from, from history, regardless of how far back you go, because the human sort of condition hasn't really changed, has it? I mean, we look at France no. now and many people in, in this country are related as, as, as they were then. I mean, there's an awful lot in common with the French that, that we've sort of forgotten about, if you like. Um, but I wanted to ask you as well to sort of move it forward into our present day, that we appear to be in a place where bad decisions are being made, where England uh, and Britain in, indeed is very much sort of isolated, if you like, uh, from every, not, not so much from Europe, but just on its own. And, and you know, it, it appears to not be going through a particularly good period. If you were a historian writing about what's going on today, you know, would you be making, um, would you be drawing uh, conclusions and, and saying there are comparisons to be made here? I would be drawing contrasts. Um, we have, uh, we are currently in the position where uh, we are essentially excluded from some of the most important aspects of European politics. And we have very occasionally been in this position before. Mm. But essentially, uh, uh, five centuries of British statesmanship have been devoted to avoiding putting us into that situation. Um, we have always traditionally, certainly since the reign of Elizabeth, arguably Elizabeth I, arguably before that, uh, the, the essential policy of Britain uh, has been to prevent any single power dominating the European continent. Or else, if a single power or alliance dominated the European continent, we had to be part of it. And that's essentially what we have lost. Uh, the result of uh, withdrawing uh, from the European Union has been uh, that we are outside the dominant bloc in the European continent um, and have no influence over what it does uh, and have to submit uh, to being part of a continent which is dominated by a foreign power. That was a an unwise thing to do. But would you say that while Britain was part of the European Union, because many people who voted to leave it would say this, that actually we didn't have much influence then either? We had a great deal of influence. Of course, there are 27 other members of the European Union, so we didn't control it. Uh, but we had a considerable say in the regulations which bound us. Many of those regulations still bind us because if we want to sell goods into the European continent, we have to comply with them whether we like it or not. So we are still dominated by the European Union. The difference is uh, that whereas we had a good deal of influence before over what it did, we now have almost mm. none. But I'm not sure anybody could point to anything that we were able to influence in a beneficial manner for our country. Um, I accept that, right. that, I mean, people will say now that the reason that, for example, 
the, the, the European relationship is deteriorating is because nobody's actually done Brexit properly, which is another argument. But for the times when we were involved, I can't think of anything that was particularly beneficial to the UK as a result of our influence. We had a considerable influence over standards. We had a considerable influence over the foreign policy of the Union, which at times we dominated, particularly, for example, in relation to the invasion of the Crimea in 2014. Uh, uh, we had quiet influence over the way in which European legislation was formed, and we were able to protect our own interests, for example, in relation to the car industry uh, and very many other industries. It is a complete nonsense to say that we had no influence. We had certainly as much influence uh, as France and Germany, uh, who now dominate the show in a way that they have never been able to do so completely before. Yeah. No, I'm not saying we had no influence. I'm just trying to work out if the influence was in any way beneficial in particular. Because I, yeah, we were always seen as a sort of slightly unwelcome guest, weren't we? No, not at all. Um, uh, I mean, obviously, there were areas where we refused to participate, for example, like the, the, uh, the single currency. But remember that the single market was the creation, above all, of Margaret Thatcher. And we benefited hugely mm. from that because uh, uh, four-fifths of our economy as services and the agreements that we have with the EU since leaving don't cover services. So uh, we were able uh, to arrange for us to have a considerable influence over our, our market and services, which is a very high proportion of our economy. Well, if you look at some of the government's decisions of late, you might wonder whether they've got any influence over anything at all, including in our own country, uh, because we seem to have a, um, a whole series of things which don't particularly work very well. And whether that's got anything to do uh, with, with being on our own, I don't know. But certainly the border force doesn't work, the NHS doesn't work, the police don't work very well, the civil service doesn't appear to do much. Um, we've now got schools which are literally crumbling before our very eyes. Um, well, I agree that most of that has nothing to do with the European <laughs> Union. But, but what is it mention, to do with? Is it, is it, I is would it's... mention one thing that is. Go on. And that is that when we were in the European Union, we had the right under the Dublin Agreement, which is part of European law, to return migrants to the last place they were yeah. in, which was France. We don't have that right anymore. Yes. There's an example for you of something which was highly beneficial to this country arising from EU law. Uh -huh. And that's something which I suppose was not foreseen because there's a many, many, many more people now coming here illegally than there were. And so it's something that I suppose has been overtaken by events. But are we, are we seeing something happening? In, as an historian, I'm asking you this question, in this country, are we seeing um, what might be rather commonly called the end of an era uh, the end of a sort of, you know, um, a civilization almost, because it, it's, it does feel like it's changing to me. I think we're in a place which we haven't been in before, and it's not a very comfortable place. In the long term, I think we're likely to get out of it, and that will involve closer relations with the European Union. Mm. What's the alternative, though? Say for those people listening to this and thinking, Assumption's gone mad, he's lost it, he wants to go back into the EU, we can't be having that. You know, is there uh, an alternative? I haven't, I haven't suggested that. All right. Suggested well, let me ask like... you, well, let me ask you another question. The law seems to be no longer what it was in this country. You know, we seem to have a, a legal process which has been um, somehow inculcated with wokery, Some, somehow seems to have been changed by the introduction of the Supreme Court, seems to have become politicised in many ways, and doesn't really seek any longer to protect individuals, but merely none to, of that is to punish them. To do, none of that is anything to do with wokery, as you call it. Uh, actually, what? the courts have been robust in standing up uh, for people who have lost their jobs because they didn't have the right opinions. If you look at cases like that of Maya Fortstetter, who won her case in mm. the Court of Appeal when she said that she was wrongly discriminated against at work because she did not believe uh, in... Uh, uh, the uh, uh, views about trans that are now regarded as essential in many places. Yeah. Now, uh, on the whole, the courts have fought a very creditable fight to protect the individuals. I don't deny that all the things that you've just been complaining about exist, but don't blame the law for that. Well, I just worry the law doesn't protect people as well. I mean, you said yourself she had to go to the Court of Appeal to get that decision, so she'd already lost the first case, presumably. Well, 
absolutely right. And, she, and her successors won't lose their cases in future because of what the Court of Appeal decided. Yeah. So, I mean, in essence, though, are we... Um, if Let me ask you the final question then. If we were to, to improve our relations with Europe, how would you suggest we do it? Well, I think that we need to um, be a lot more... Uh, 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 willing to compromise, I think both parties need to be a lot more yeah. willing to compromise on things like the com the customs union, uh, which would have been a highly beneficial arrangement that would not have involved taking uh, rules from the uh, uh, from the European Union. Mm. That would be a very good start. Yes, that would be a good start, and maybe um, the Labour government, if it is to be the next one, will do so. They haven't said that, but I suspect they'll make you something rather like it. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, listen, a delight to talk to you. We could do this for a much longer period of time, but I fear uh, that we have run out of time. But very interesting stuff. Triumph and Illusion, The Hundred Years' War, Part 5. Uh, there it is. Um, if you want a history of The Hundred Years' War, then this is it, says the Sunday Times. It will surely remain it for decades to come. Um, Jonathan, thank you very much indeed for your time. Jonathan Sumption, there, author and medieval historian. Um, I think we agreed on a couple of things. I'm not quite sure what they were. Um, this is Talk TV. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.